Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing on in our ongoing series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 33, verses 12 through 17, as Jacob journeys to Succoth. In typical Jordan fashion, he takes the details of this passage and shows much of the typology and the theology throughout. We want to thank you for listening. We hope that you're sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan continuing on the life of Jacob in Genesis chapter 33. We ended in verse 11 of Genesis 33. I'll just read this again, starting in verse 1. Jacob lifted up his eyes and saw, and there was Esau coming, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maids. And he put the two maids and their children first, and Leah and her children behind them, and Rachel and Joseph behind them. Remember, we saw that this is so that they can be presented in climactic order before Esau while he himself advanced ahead of them. And he bowed low to the ground seven times until he had come close to his brother, and Esau ran to meet him. Jacob is limping, but Esau is running, so the twins are now quite different from one another. And he embraced him. We saw that was virtually the same as the word for wrestle. So God had wrestled with Jacob, and now Esau, and that represented Esau wrestling with him, and now Esau wrestles with him, but now it's positive instead of negative. There's a change. And flung himself upon his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and said, What are those to you? And he said, The children with whom God has favored your servant. And the maids came close there, and they children and bowed low. And Leah and her children came close and bowed low. And afterwards, Joseph and Rachel came close and bowed low. This is very ceremonial here. All acknowledging that in some sense Esau has a superiority. He's the Lord of this land that they're traveling through. And we'll discuss this in just a moment. And he said, What to you is all this camp I have met? And he said, To find favor in my Lord's eyes. And Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what is yours remain yours. And Jacob said, No, I pray. Prithee, if I have found favor in your eyes, then take this gift from my hand. For I have, after all, seen your face as one sees the face of God, and you have been gracious to me. Please take this blessing that I brought for you, for God has shown me favor, for I have everything, and he pressed him and he took it. We made the point last week, this is the only occurrence of the word blessing in this chapter. Where we would expect to see blessing earlier, the word favor appears. God has shown me favor. In the rest of Genesis, that would be written, God has blessed me. But the word favor is used throughout the passage of verse 5, the children with whom God has favored your servant. What is this camp to find favor in my Lord's eyes? If I have found favor in your eyes, studies of the incidents of the occurrence of words in parallel passages would show you that you might have expected the word blessing to occur here. Now, commentators, some of them, say, well, Jacob doesn't want to mention the word blessing because that's a thorn in Esau's side and he doesn't want to remind him of the past. Well, who knows what entirely is in Jacob's mind. Everybody always has mixed motives in everything they do in this world. And you cannot know yourself. You know, the Greeks say, Socrates says, know yourself. And the Bible says you can't know yourself. It's God's business to know us, not our business to know ourselves. 
So what all his motives were and how it all blends together, who knows and really who cares. The way the passage is written, favor is then climaxed with the word blessing to call attention to it. That Jacob, who had received the entire blessing from Isaac before, now returns a token of it, a portion of it, to Esau. And that's what's important here. The commentators see this as Jacob's repentance for stealing from Esau. There are a couple of problems with that. Number one, as we've gone over a bunch of times, Jacob didn't really steal anything from Esau. God said it was to be Jacob's, and so it was. And he didn't steal it from Esau. The person who was responsible for stealing from Esau was Isaac, because the rule was that the property would be divided into, you got two sons, you divide the property into thirds, and two-thirds goes to the firstborn, and one-third goes to the secondborn. So if you've got two sons, the older one gets two-thirds, he gets a double portion, and the younger one gets one-third. If you've got twelve sons, you divide it into thirteen parts, and the oldest one gets two shares, and all the rest get one share. Well, what Isaac did, of course, as you recall, is he gave all of it to Jacob. He gave the part that should have gone to Jacob to Jacob, and the part that should have gone to Esau, he gave to Jacob. And, of course, he intended to give it all to Esau. So the person who disinherited Esau was not Jacob, but Isaac. Jacob has to come as a substitute for Isaac and to undo the sins of Isaac. He has to make it up. We've talked about that in the past. And the fact that the sins of the fathers are indeed visited on the children of the third and fourth generation. Now, that doesn't mean that my sons are responsible for my sins and that God will punish them in a moral sense and hold them accountable, it does mean that culturally speaking, if parents do something wrong and mess up their lives, the children are going to have to bear the responsibility of that. So if I inherited $500,000 and I just traveled all around the world and took uh, trips with it and used it all up, my children would inherit nothing and they'd have to start from scratch and then start earning their own money and building it back up again because I wasted it all. That's the reality of life. Children have to make up for the sins of their parents if those sins are of that kind. And that's why history moves along and one generation after another improves on what was there before or else makes things worse. Isaac is sinned. Jacob as Isaac's replacement. Jacob means replacement and he's Isaac's replacement. Jacob makes it back. Jacob gives Esau the portion that he deserved. There's also this as well. Jacob did not actually, at least so far, he hasn't received any inheritance from Isaac. He was sent away. We don't know where Esau got his inheritance. I think that it is going to be implied when we get to chapter 36 that Esau's wives were of important Canaanite clans, that Esau intermarries with the nation of Seir, and that his wealth comes from there. So it's probable that all of this inheritance here, which was given to Jacob by the blessing, right now Isaac still has it. And when Isaac dies, Jacob will get it. So where does Esau get his wealth? Well, he gets it from down here, from being involved with the Gentiles and Canaanites. That's where Esau gets his. But it's still a fact that Isaac's sin 
And this portion right here is supposed to go to Esau. And I think that what we have here is Jacob making it up to Esau now. Of course, there's lots of other things going on. He wants to get favor in Esau's eyes, and this seems like a good way to do it. And it is a good way to do it. I mean, he's making up something that was stolen from Esau. Esau is reluctant to take it. Why doesn't Esau want to take it? Or to ask the question another way, a better way to ask it. Of all the things that the Bible could tell us about this incident, why is that given attention? See, these guys spent all day together, and they talked about a lot of things. The Bible tells us certain particular things that are important. It doesn't tell us everything. As we'll see in a few minutes, there's big gaps of time in this story that we don't know what was going on. But here, why is this important? Esau says, I had plenty uh, what is yours remain yours? Well, that tells us that God has made things up to Esau somehow, or Esau has made it up to himself, what was taken from him. But it's interesting that Esau doesn't want it. Is it because of pride that he won't receive a gift? You run into this all the time with people. You try to do something nice for them, and they can't receive it. And it's because of pride. They feel like they got to make it back to you. You do something nice for somebody, and next thing you know, they've got to do something back to you because they cannot receive a gift. The world's full of people like this. And we're all that way. I mean, there's a little bit of that inside of everybody. You don't want to be beholden to other people, but to receive a gift from somebody assaults your pride. That's why people won't receive the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is free. That's why Catholicism invented all kinds of things that we get to do to earn salvation. You have to merit the merits of Christ. Because it offends your pride to say this is completely free and there's nothing you can do to earn it. And you don't pay for it. That's offensive to pride. And pride is original sin. So, is it Esau's pride that says, I don't want to receive anything. I only want what I myself have earned because I feel good about that. And it's humility for me to receive something from someone else. Well, that's probably at least part of it. But all we know is he says that he doesn't want it. Jacob says, if I have found favor in your eyes, please take this gift. So he puts it in such a way as that Esau can maintain pride and control in the situation. He doesn't say, you have to receive this. I'm forcing you to give it. He says, as a sign that you, Esau, have forgiven me, please take this. And then he says, I have seen your face as one sees the face of God. And just as God has been gracious to me, you've been gracious to me. I thought you were coming out with 400 men to kill me, but as it turns out, you came to say hello and escort me through your land, which is nice of you, Esau. Thanks. So Esau's reluctance to receive things may partly be, he's got his own stuff, we learned that here, and partly as the symbol that he is not wanting to be beholden to Jacob, but he's forced to be. Please take the blessing I have brought you. God has shown me favor. I have everything I need. So he pressed him. and Actually, at the end of verse 11 there, he pressed him and he took it. It's a strong Hebrew word. It means that they haggle about this a little bit. And he, finally, Esau submitted to what Jacob wanted. Now, I think that it's probably significant in this passage that Esau never says anything about God, and Jacob does several times. Whatever has changed Esau doesn't seem to be conversion we would expect something else to be said here. For instance, earlier in the book, 
We read about Ishmael. It says God was with the lad. He's promised God will be with him. God is with the lad. Later on, Abimelech, God appears to Abimelech, and so forth. Others, but when it's absent from a passage like this, we're probably, it's a significant absence. Esau is still not one who's oriented toward God. So, the important thing is, a blessing is returned by Jacob. Jacob, acting as Isaac, makes it back up to Esau. And then Esau asked for something, and there's more subtlety here. Verses 12 to 14. Then he said, as this is Esau speaking, Let us travel on, and I will go at your side, says this one. I will go before you is actually what it means. It doesn't mean I will travel a couple of days ahead of you, but it means I'll be in the lead. I will lead you to Seir. That's where he wants to go. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, that the sheep and oxen are suckling in my care. If I were to push them for a single day, all the animals would die. Pray let my Lord cross on ahead of his servant. As for me, I will travel slowly at the pace of the gear ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Now, Esau, and again, we don't have information here to come up with motives. We'll put a good motive and a bad motive and a medium motive on it. Esau wants to assume the older brother privileges over Jacob. I'll lead you to Seir, where I'm in charge, and you can live under me. And I'll be the older brother, and you'll be the younger brother, just like it always was, Jacob. And I've forgiven you for all this stuff for the last 20 years, and now we'll go back to the way it was, the way it used to be. When I was the older brother, and you were the younger brother, and now I've got this land of Seir, and you can come and live with me and... Everything will be just the way it used to be. Which means Esau is the older brother. Now, why would Esau do this? Well, we could say he just wants to exploit Jacob the way Laban did. Well, that would not seem to be the case. Although, when Jacob first came to Laban, Laban was very friendly to him too and then turned against him. Remember, after a month, Laban turned against him. If Jacob has learned anything, it might be that Esau is friendly right now, but a month from now, if I go live with him, he may be setting conditions on my flock, taxing me, saying, well, you live here, so you need to pay taxes or something. So who knows? But what's in Esau's mind? I don't think we can eliminate human affection. These guys may have fought, but they were brothers, and the brothers fight, but they also care about each other. You fight with your brother all the time, but if somebody from the outside attacks your brother, then you stand up and defend him. The way it is in families. And I think Esau, he's feeling very good. And he likes the idea of having his brother back with him. But this can't happen. Because it was not right to start with for Jacob to be under Esau. And especially after these transitions that God has put him through, Jacob knows that he must not come under Esau or go to Seir with his clan. Jacob can't do that. Jacob has to go and have the place that God wants him to have and not go and put himself under Esau and let Esau be the leader. But that's what's going to happen if he travels with Esau, because Esau is going to go back to Seir. And he's got these 400 guys with him, and they're just going to assume that that's where Jacob's going to go. He's going to go back and be part of Esau's clan, or sheikdom, his kingdom. And Jacob must not do that, no matter what Esau's motivation is. Even if Esau is full of natural love in his heart, 
even if Esau has been regenerated and we haven't been told about it and he's in heaven now and this is all very spiritual desire on his part, it's still inappropriate and it can't happen. Jacob can't go along with this. So he begs off with all these excuses here which are actually pretty thin. He says to him, My Lord knows the children are frail. Well, Dinah, if she's been born by this time, is still a nursing infant. It's not really clear. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah, is what it says here. And whether that means that Dinah was born before they left the land of Laban or later is unclear. We are told that all the sons were born out there, but when it just says later on she bore Dinah, that may be that Dinah is a nursing baby at this point, or maybe that Dinah hasn't even been born. We'll have to think about that in a few minutes and what it means for the narrative. But at least there are others who are very young and who are either one or two years old, and so he can point to that. Children are frail. We can't go real fast. you got 400 men here. They're going to want to march along, and we can't go with them. And sheep and oxen are suckling in my care. Well, that's either true or false, but if it was false, he couldn't say it. And so obviously it is true. Whatever time of year this is, there are baby sheeps and baby beeves out there that are suckling. And so he says if we were to push them for a single day, all the animals would die. Well, that's just a hyperbolic way of speaking. Obviously, they wouldn't all die. The older ones wouldn't, but he's saying all the young ones would die if we pushed them. So I want to travel slowly. Go ahead and cross ahead of me, and you go on ahead. And as for me, I will travel slowly at the pace of the gear ahead of me and at the pace of the children. Well, now, Esau could have traveled slowly. None of these arguments touch the issue. Esau could have said, well, I can travel slow. We'll travel at your pace. But Esau picks up on the fact that Jacob is begging off. And so he lets him beg off. He does say, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Now that's a promise that Jacob will someday visit Seir. Now that's ambiguous because Esau can take it as, yeah, we'll move on through the wilderness here. I mean, we'll move on through this land and we will all come to Seir. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, we will come to Seir. He doesn't say, my family will come to Seir. He just says, I will. Well, over the next 40 years, I'm sure these guys visit each other from time to time at Christmas and other occasions. But Jacob is not going to take his clan, his people, to Seir. He's going to take them to Succoth, which is at a different place. Because he mustn't go and come under Esau. So... Jacob might well have visited him later on, but without the family. Or even if he brought along some of his family, some of his older sons, he wouldn't be moving in and becoming part of the nation of Seir and being absorbed into it. That's something we mustn't do. So Esau says one more time, Esau offers to protect Jacob in verses 15 and 16. Esau said, pray let me leave with you some of the people who are mine. And Jacob said, for what reason? May I only find favor in my Lord's eyes. In other words, he says, look, if you want to do me a favor, don't press me on this. So Esau gets the message. Once again, if Esau's men accompany Jacob, they'll lead him to Seir. And Jacob has his own men there to protect his clan. Remember that when Jacob became wealthy from all the spotted and speckled and striped and polka dotted and plaid sheep and goats, it says he bought men. He acquired 
men. And so he's got other men with him as part of his fledgling sheikdom, and he doesn't need Esau's men. So Esau started back that same day on his journey to Seir. So they've met, they've reconciled. Esau has generously offered for Jacob to go back to the way things used to be, and Jacob has politely declined, and Esau has accepted that that's the way it's supposed to be. He's not going to make trouble over this. He doesn't want to fight. And so they separate. And that's what happens there. One other verse that we will do today is verse 17. Which Seth. And Yaakov traveled to Sukkot, and he built himself a house there for his livestock he made sheds. And for that reason they call the name of that place Sukkot, or sheds, or clouds. Now, chiastically, this is parallel to Isaac at Beersheba. Oh, well, if you have your notes from last week, you can look back and see the chiastic structures there. In chapter 26, in terms of the narrative structure, when Abimelech and Pico, these Gentiles, well, let's just put it up here. Isaac is in Gerar, and the Gentiles are there. And they fight with him over well. Okay, what we're about to read is at Shechem, we have Gentiles, and we have Dinah, and of course remember that women are wells. So, the attack on Dinah and taking her is parallel to the Gentiles attacking and taking these wells. And we spend a lot of time on the well-women connection, and we'll have to take it up again. Well, at the end of this story, the end of the Gerar story, we come to Beersheba, where this covenant is made, and right on the other side of the Shechem story is this Sukkoth incident. And then sandwiched in from there is Esau and Jacob, where Isaac steals the inheritance from Esau, intending to steal it from Jacob, and what we just read is Esau and Jacob where Jacob makes the inheritance back up to him in this conflict here and reconciliation here. And then all the other stories that we've looked at are sandwiched in between. So where we are right now, and I want you to see this, is Beersheba is at the beginning of this narrative. We have this transition where God wrestles with him and, well, depending on how you outline the passage, God wrestles with him and he's changed. And then we come to Sukkoth. Now the relationship between the two is the word Beersheba means well and the word Sukkoth means cloud. So one of these is waters below and one is waters above. <laughs> because the way we outline things, that looks exactly wrong, doesn't it? But if we had outlined it and starting at the bottom of moving up, you'd see it. But in between here has been this death and resurrection experience at Peniel, where God kills him and gives him this limp and brings him back to life again, so to speak. And also, the whole business of going into a strange land outside the promised land is a death and then coming back resurrection experience. And so these things happen, and now we're on the other side. We move from lower waters to upper waters, in terms of the imagery here. So that's what I wanted you to see here. As Calvin says, 
that is the thing that we are to learn at this place, among other things. Well, Sukkoth means clouds, and thus it means sheds or lean-tos, because sheds or lean-tos hide the sun. If you got animals out there and you want to keep the sun off of them, you build a little lean-to or a shed or something so they can go and be in from the sun. But this word sukkoth actually primarily means clouds rather than sheds or boots. I said here, I perceive a movement upwards here from waters below to waters above with Peniel as a transition. Remember that Jacob was seen a ladder to heaven when he left. He was at the bottom of that ladder. Well, now he's ascended up this ladder. He's now not a slave and a child who is not yet married. You're not married yet, you're still a child. For this reason, the man leans his mother and father and cleaves to his wife. It doesn't mean that in every sense a person is 40 years old. And My dad married when he was 40. So he obviously wasn't a child in that sense. But in one sense, you're still in your old life. And you haven't married and moved into your new life. Jacob, even though he's 77, is still in this sense child, and he's a slave, and he's a servant, and he's at the bottom of the ladder. He is under authority. And now, this death and resurrection experience where God says, you are now fit. God says, I'm done wrestling with you in the way I was before, and you're now fit. You're ready to come into the promised land, and there's this kind of death and resurrection experience here that he goes through wrestling with God and getting this limp and then coming in as the sun rises. Remember, we saw the sun rise and that picture of resurrection power and strength that's there. He comes in. He's essentially moved up the ladder. Now he's in charge and he's got his sons that he's got to deal with and the story is now going to shift to Jacob dealing with his sons. Not dealing as a son himself, but now one who has sons and who is over them. So all the imagery here fits with basic concepts that are in this story, the latter itself. I want you to remember that Israel dwelt at another Sukkoth right after they left Egypt. So this event here is somewhat prophetic. Several months ago I took you through the entire Jacob-Joseph narrative and showed you how in about 40 different ways it tracks what happens with Moses and the nation of Israel later on, and you've got that in your notes. But when the children of Israel leave Egypt, in 1237 it says the sons of Israel move from Ramesses to Succoth. And then they stay there. And then it says in 1320 they moved on from Succoth and camped at Etam at the edge of the wilderness. And God was leading them in a pillar of cloud and fire. And then the Egyptians come out after them and they go across the Red Sea. Now this is not the same Succoth, you see. When they come out of Egypt, they built some sheds or booths to dwell in. But you notice that there's an association of God leading them in a pillar of cloud. So God is in his cloud, and all the people are in their cloud. And that is what the Feast of Clouds is about. We call it the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. But that word booth or tabernacles is Sukkoth. So if you ever read anything written by Jews, they talk about celebrating Sukkoth. That's what they're talking about. God is in his cloud here at the tabernacle, and once a year, all the Israelites are supposed to camp around that in their own booths, not in tents. The tent is made of animal skin. These are made of tree branches. 
So if you make a house out of tree branches, what kind of house is it? It's a tree house, which is again off the ground. And if you study this out, you'll see people sitting under trees, under the shade of trees. The way a tree looks is the way a cloud looks. And the leafy canopy of a tree is very much parallel to God's cloud. And every Israelite now is his own cloud because we're glorified with the glory of God. And this is a glory cloud. When they come out of Egypt, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first time, they have it at this place called Succoth, or clouds, and later on, the Feast of Succoth, which is six months later, is set up to memorialize this, and it commemorates this event. So that's some things about clouds that the Bible later on talks about, and we could trace the whole Feast of Booths thing all the way through the Bible, and we did some of that when we saved Revelation. I want to do it again now. There is a little contrast here I've got down. It, God leads the people to Succoth and then to the Red Sea when they come out of Egypt. But Jacob doesn't let Esau lead him. God is leading Jacob and he doesn't go with Esau. He goes to clouds or booths. So he stays there. Then it says in verse 18, chapter 33, Jacob came home in peace to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his homecoming from the country of Aram. And he encamped facing the city, and he acquired a piece of territory where he had spread out his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred lambs worth. And he set up a slaughter site or altar. And he called it El, the God of Israel. And Dinah, Leah's daughter, whom she had born to see the chapter division here, was completely wrong. Those first three verses should have been in chapter 34. And Dinah, Leah's daughter, whom she'd born to Jacob, went out to visit the other girls. And Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite prince of the land, saw her, and he took her and lay with her by force. And his emotions clung to Dinah, Jacob's daughter, and he loved the girl, and he spoke to the heart of the girl, and so forth. Now, the only thing I want to make about this is we've got a large chronological gap in here. It's not immediately obvious, but it will be on a moment's reflection. For Dinah to be a girl of marriageable age, she's got to be, well, let's say 15 or 16. Girls enter puberty a little bit later in cultures that don't have electric lights. Nobody knows exactly why that is, but if you go to bed when the sun goes down and get up when the sun comes up, that seems to extend childhood just a little bit. And I've read studies about this. It's kind of interesting that staying up late at night and all that tends to make people come up earlier. That's not always true. Depends on the race and the culture and everything else. But let's put her at 15. If she's a baby when they come back into the land, then this is 15 years later. And as I said, she might not even have been born yet when they came back into the land. So this might even be 20 years later if she was born after they came back into the land. We don't know for sure. But we'll just take the shortest chronology here and make it 15. Now what I want you to see is, I think I had mentioned this already, this is Dinah. And we're going to make her 15 when this happens to her. She isn't 6 or 7 when it happens to her, I can guarantee you. Well, Joseph was born 6 years earlier. So, Joseph is born here. And there's six years in here. And when Joseph was 17, look where that is. He was sold into Egypt. So Joseph has already 
gone to Egypt by the time this happens to Dinah. We can put the whole chronology up here. One, Joseph, born. Six, Dinah, born. Seventeen, Joseph into captivity. Then twenty-one, Dinah is ravished. I don't think most people realize that. Because what the text has done, of course, is it has given us the Jacob story, and then as a separate literary unit, it gives us the Joseph story. And so it moves back in time to pick up Joseph's departure. And there are reasons for that. But once we get the whole book of Genesis and we reflect upon it, one of the things that we should understand is that Joseph's already gone by this time. So Jacob has already lost the son that he loved. Moreover, the way the story is written... This happens. Then chapter 35, God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel. So they go to Bethel. And in verse 8 of chapter 35, Deborah dies and they bury her at Bethel. And God appears to him and makes promises to him at Bethel. In verse 16, as they departed from Bethel, Rachel gives birth to Benjamin. So, the birth of Benjamin probably happens about a year or two later. So I think it's just interesting for you to know, in terms of chronology, Benjamin certainly was not born when Jacob was sold into slavery. That's why Jacob had no idea that he even had a younger brother. But Benjamin is not born till after this incident with Dinah. And that just gives you an idea of the situation in the family that I think a lot of us don't have from Sunday school. We have a wrong chronological understanding of when these events happened. So how long did they dwell at Succoth? Well, they might have dwelt at Succoth for a long period here and then they moved to Shechem. Or it might be that they moved to Shechem and lived there for ten years before this incident happened with Dinah. But I don't think so. And when we get to the story, it looks as if they had recently moved to the area. So my guess is they were probably at Succoth for 14 or 15 years and then they moved on. Of course, they may have moved five or six different places and we're just not told about it. Because the Bible only tells us the things that are theologically important for us to understand. It doesn't tell us all the curious details we might want to know about these people's lives. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.